Hello and welcome to the Blind Shots Podcast. I'm your host, David Hill, the guy who sounds like a Xanax had a voice, and I'm coming to you from beside the 11th Green on Atlantic Dunes at the annual One Bearded Golf Family Holiday Road Game, and this is Season 5, Episode 2. Today, I welcome back to the show author, journalist, and all-around good guy, Hal Phillips. Hal's interests are as varied as his substantial talents are deep. He is, among other titles, the principal behind Mandarin Media, a golf and hospitality-focused integrated digital marketing firm. That's how I met him, uh, through his work for Fry Stratka when Kenwood Country Club's Kendale course was being reopened. I was lucky enough to get selected to enjoy some preview play. Uh, he also plays a mean lead guitar for Pocket Full of Mumbles, Maine's favorite purveyors of smart twang. A threesome or foursome, depending on who's paying the bill for that particular gig. And perhaps most importantly, for our purposes today, he is the author of Generation Zero. which The subtitle is Founding Fathers, Hidden Histories, and the Making of Soccer in America. His engaging storytelling weaves together basically all the different threads of the various growth, regression, and rebirth cycles of American soccer that culminated in uh, Team USA Soccer arriving upon the world stage in earnest at the 1990 World Cup. Even with my meager appreciation for soccer history, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's a great book, and I heartily recommend it. Uh, It's available now in paperback on Amazon from Dickinson Moses Press. We happen to be living through kind of a tumultuous time in men's professional golf, which, for better or worse, is seen as a driver uh, in the game of golf. I have some thoughts on that for sure. Uh, but it's there's enough turmoil that I thought, and I wondered if Hal might recognize any familiar storylines from his lived experience or research for the book from soccer. Uh, in true Blighton Shots podcast form, I wasn't sure exactly where our conversation was going to lead, but I was sure it was going to be entertaining to be a part of, and I think you're going to enjoy listening to it too. Before we dive in, a reminder that the Blind Shots podcast is made possible without commercial interrupting or need for sacrificing livestock to the gods by my day job as David Hill Realtor with Rector Hayden Realtors. I help people sell their house and find their new home, as well as helping investors and businesses with their commercial property needs in Central Kentucky. It's still a very interesting time to be a realtor, to say the least, and it's always a great time to be a homeowner. So if you want to know what's happening in our market, please feel free to reach out. You can email me at davidhill at rhr.com. I'd be happy to start a conversation with you. Now, sit up straight, drink up, and enjoy my conversation on sport in America with one of the least crusty New Englanders I've ever had the pleasure of knowing, Hal Phillips. blood libel rivalries here are you know college foot it's hatfield mccoys which are real people um Mm -hmm. and you know this is the college football this is where that kind of you know blood libel rivalry is so the idea of um a protagonist antagonist in the soccer that 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 little pitch i read seemed that was interesting to me um well i think that it's i think that it's fair to say um and i've certainly written about this a lot since the book is out is that you know, the period of, you know, the late 80s and early 90s really introduced the internationalism of sport to America. And I say that because up to that time, 
you know, nobody really followed any sport in an international way. All of our competitions are domestic, you know, mm-hmm. um, the NBA, college football, football itself, um, uh, baseball is, you know, played by people overseas, but, you know, we don't play them as America. They come here to play and that's fine. But um, uh, the 1989 men's national team, the U- the soccer national team and the women's team in 91, they sort of showed us how this worked. They said, you know, you can root for America against other countries in sport outside of the Olympic Games. Um, right. The the Russians were such a such a good foil for so long, and all of their satellites, you know, right. that was that's all we knew. Right. That's the only context we had. It was an interesting, fun context as far as it went. It wasn't really a team thing, though. Only rarely. You know, the U.S. Uh, hockey team in 1980 was the best example of how we we were like, oh, this is fun rooting for our American boys or girls against another. But we didn't follow up on that in any way. Um, so it's been my, you know, the the men's hockey team in the late, you know, 80s and 90 and 94, especially when we hosted the World Cup, along with, crucially, the NBA dream. Right. Showed Americans how it worked, how it could be fun, how it's it's actually, you know, useful to to mobilize your jingoism about this country in a revel, rev, relatively frivolous and fun way. And I think that we've gone from strength to strength in this regard. And soccer's rise since the early 90s has risen with it. You know, getting to the early 90s was interesting. I love the book because it was all new to me. I mean, I'm I'm on the tail end of your Gen X cohort. Okay, I'm I'm mm-hmm. a '79 kid. So for me, the introduction to soccer, the only people I knew were I'd heard of Pele, but it was Kobe Jones and Tony Miola. Oh, he's the guy that got an NFL tryout, and Alexi Lawless with the crazy hair. You know that yeah. ninety that '94 team, and that mirrored what I knew of soccer players in my town. They were the kids that didn't play the big three sports. They didn't look like me. You know, it was almost, it, it was like I was reliving in middle America was reliving the fifties. Again, you had, you either had the crew cut, the Notre Dame haircut, you know, football playing all American kids, or you had the guys with the leather jackets and the grease, you know, slicked back. And that was mm-hmm. the divide for me growing up between soccer, you know, soccer players and everyone else. So to kind of, to have through generation zero to to kind of have that roadmap of how we got there and how it all changed was was really fascinating. First thing I want you to talk about on this: when in the process or how in the process you tell there's a lot of we. There's a first person element to the book, which I wasn't expecting and I absolutely loved. It was it's a good hook, uh, you know, to for an American reading the book. So talk to me a little bit about how. Because it's not just a straight history, you know, kind of biographical thing of the guys that were involved. Tell me how that conception kind of came and how you ran with it. Right. Well, that is a conceit of the book. The the main characters, all these members of the U.S. national team um, in 1989 and 90, they're exactly my age. Um, so we had the same exact experience being exposed, being born in the 1960s and raised as the country's first soccer natives in the 70s. We all had that experience. But beyond that, 
you know, I, these guys billeted in my house. I mean, um, I knew them, um, you know, I competed against them as a 12 year old. I competed against them in college. I can competed with and against them, you know, in the semi-pro leagues, um, in the absence of post NASL pre MLS, um, cause we were all in our, you know, physical primes. I was born in 64 in 1990, I was 26 years old. So at the time, you know, I, on, I knew this intellectually, but I, it's not like, Hey, there's Bruce Murray. He stayed in my house. I have a connection to them. I was into soccer and they were the sort of emblem of our soccer capability or emerging. So that was where it was. But when I started writing the book, I was like, Oh, wow, this is their story is my story. And my story is their, their story. Okay. That, you know, that, that it makes sense and it makes it more interesting. I'll have the same experience experiences of you know being on youth teams with coaches you know someone's dad who didn't know anything about soccer and that's so weird when you think about it because I played little league baseball I played a bunch of little league basketball the idea that the coach didn't know anything about the sport that he was coaching you was weird <laughs> that's me you know that that is where that is where we are as a nation I have a nine-year-old and a six-year-old I coached them both in soccer. We're getting ready to start indoor soccer. Our first, right. I tried futsal last year. We're moving to Lexington actually has Lexington soccer club. So they're hosting, they're graciously hosting it this winter. Um, right. You know, I watch EPL games. I watch the world cup. I, I understand spacing a little bit, mm -hmm. but if yeah. you, it, you know, it, I can show you how to dribble a basketball between my legs. I can't show you how to kick a, you know, to dribble a, a soccer ball other than forward. So you do give a shout out to that in the book. They're they're kind of the the background yeoman of you know it wasn't in minivans. I, I don't think you had minivans in the seventies. You had full you had station wagons. We had giant wood paneled station wagons. <laughs> Two redwoods on each side, right? <laughs> yes. Um. So I, I appreciate that as as the lineal descendant of all those dads. I do appreciate the shout out. But it was what is the scene. Compare it today because there are still the youth soccer revolution is still going on. The mm -hmm. the byproduct of all these men you talk about in in Generation Zero is still happening, and there are still gra flat grass fields flooded with unknowing, well-meaning dads and moms to to some extent. Did they in the moment? You know, you talk about the uh, the first the the predecessor that was it North American Soccer League. And, yep. you know, those guys were rock stars and you talk about the clinics, you know, the, the big hook was around where you grew up around, well, the suburbs, you had the stars from the Boston based team that would yep. give a clinic in the moment. Did those guys know that they were, were really pushing the game forward, that they were on the verge of that fulfilled promise? Like your, like uh Raj says, you know, America's sport and waiting since 72, did they right. have any idea? Yeah, they did. Um, they But they also knew the limitations of what they were doing. I mean, they knew that, yes, wow, we're playing professional soccer in America. But they also recognized that, you know, the league was being propped up, you know, by larger entities, not not actual fan interest. And that, oh, only two Americans are um, playing on every team at all times by fiat, you know, just, just so that they would be participating as a marketing ploy and a and a weird sort of development strategy. They knew it, um, but um, they weren't surprised when the NASL failed either in 1984. And I guess what what a lot of people don't the, the disconnect for for 
for me is, and a lot of people, including the guys on the 89 team that I talked to was they would have thought that in the seventies and eighties, the national team especially would have been better because they've all been, all these guys have been playing in NASL, all these Americans, um, but they weren't, they weren't good. And they, that, that, that's a, that that's a long discussion that we can get into if you want, but there would, there was no mainstreaming. Like one of the things that I think is unique about the book is that it, it's a, it's a where it's, it's a, you know, where, why, when, and, and how the deal um, there's a, there's a, uh, there's been renewed interest in Gen- Generation Zero because there's been a show on Paramount Plus called The Billion Dollar Goal. Um, Grant Wall, the, the mm-hmm. soccer writer who passed away a year ago, um, did a bunch of interviews on this subject, you know, more or less after he read my book uh, about, you know, this story and how it's not been told um, enough. And the story of, you know, this 89 team. And that was really the tipping point. It took until 1989 and 90 to mainstream the, the sport right but the thrust of the book is that you can't just mainstream a sport by getting by starting a league you can't just mainstream a sport by hosting a world cup what you need to do is what did what what america did do in the 70s you get the kids when they're young there was before there was a youth soccer scene in america we had no we had no chance of building the sport in this country and Frankly, once we started in 1970, it took us till 1990 to do it because those guys had to grow up. For listeners, what we're talking about, the the book builds the history towards the pinnacle, I think you'd say is the 90 World Cup, the the Italy World Cup. And for me, as I mentioned at the outset, that's the team before the team, that before before consciousness, you know, because of that 20 year run up, you had the 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 after effect, the epilogue to this is America got to host the 1994 world cup and it, right. it brought it all of a sudden it's in Orlando and DC it's in all these major metros. But, um, so it, it's interesting that journey, the, the who, what, when, you know, your identification, all I know from hockey is what they told me in miracle on ice, but it seemed they're like a nice parallel that you had pockets of, ex-urban suburban kids from new england and random spots in the midwest that had good uh immigrant populations essentially and their kids you know the big thing in there was pit the new englanders against the midwesterners and you know little internal competition just like your book lays out like you had st louis as this random hotbed because of its immigrant culture in and carney new jersey this little you know suburb that produced three world you know national team members that that's that doesn't happen. No, and 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 that was really the situation with soccer in America for a hundred years. There were always these pockets of soccer interest due to the the never ending waves of immigration that come here. They uh, group themselves together. I'm not going to use the word ghettoized, but it was usually by choice um, in these urban areas. And soccer was big there, but it never got into the mainstream um, because when those people, you know. Um, succeeded and moved out to the suburbs there was no infrastructure for their kids to play soccer the the urban ethnic clubs that they all, all played with in, in downtown st louis and downtown philadelphia they're not out there in the suburbs what changed in the 70s was soccer got into the suburbs and they got into the suburbs through this youth soccer organization um and which had coverage and to go back to hockey i mean hockey i love hockey i grew up in boston i i played pond hockey 
you know, every day, you know, um, of the, you know, of the winter outside on a pond. And, um, but, you know, hockey is never going to make it in America like soccer has and baseball has, because, you know, only a third of the people actually even play it right, or can play it due to climate and culture. You know, there's, there's teams in Florida and Arizona, but no, the kids aren't playing hockey in Phoenix. They're just not. That's how you do it. And until the 70s, America had never had that kind of youth um, soccer infrastructure. Then it did. And it didn't take, you know, any kind of hand of God or a whole lot of money to do. You just had to have people who were interested in starting these youth leagues and dads had to coach it, you know, who'd never played before. And, you know, it didn't matter. But the point is, is that that cohort of people grew up to, you know, populate the 1990 U.S. men's national soccer team and the women's national soccer team that won the whole World Cup in 1991. Those are the kids that right. started it. And oh, by the way, 99% of the kids who played with them who weren't good enough to play for the national team, they had a working knowledge of soccer so that when they coached their kids in the 90s and the early aughts, they knew enough about soccer to be able to do it. They knew enough not to just dispatch it out of hand. And I would I would put you in that group. I say, give yourself a little credit. You know enough about it. Just like some dad knows enough about it to teach a kid how to bat right hand or left hand and how to get down on a grounder and throw his body in front of it so that, you know, you know yes. that much. You don't have to be a technician to coach Little League baseball and basketball, but you have to be there. You know, the you've said a couple of things. I want to pull some threads and and drag us over towards the golf world. You know, sure. when you talk about the league being propped up, the, the North American Soccer League being propped up, I couldn't help wondering, you know, okay, is live the the MLS? Are they coming in for real? Are they the NASL? They're propped up for a couple of years before all of a sudden the the Saudi wealth fund gets bored and, or, you know, sees a profit opportunity and, you know, they, they do a lot, a lot of what they're doing. They have all the talking points to grow the game bullet points and making the, the, the game more global. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering because it's all at that top end that they've got, they've assembled their teams of rock stars, you know, the golf went through great growth with started with John Daly brought it, you know, he was not from central casting and then tiger obviously exploded the sport and got it down. Now there are in Lexington, Kentucky, there are three competing youth golf leagues. There's mm -hmm. between the AJGA, uh, the local KGA and the city league. I can stick my, I can plug my kids in and it doesn't have the little league dads aren't involved. Thank goodness. They have some real coaching, but I see, <laughs> I see kind of the way on a global, it seems like on a global way, is I'm just wondered where golf professional golf is in this weird space. And I don't see what is happening there kind of pulling the sport to the people I almost feel like it's going the opposite way, except for the talking points. And I'm just curious, right. you've been around, you know, professionally around golf for forever. And it, do you, am I off with that? Or is it kind of what, what do you see from researching and living through that on the soccer side is has golf learned any lessons or are they just, we're just repeating history all over again. Well, I don't even know what's happening now. The signing of John Rahm to live tour completely confused me. I don't follow the tours. Like I follow golf courses. I run, you know, I run right. mostly about golf courses. And I don't talk a lot of pro golf here either, but it's been, yeah. there's just been so much kind of head spinning action 
I'm I'm just wondering. I'm trying to get the thirty thousand foot view, and I have no idea what's good. This is going to look well, like. I'll give you thirty thousand feet. In the nineteenth century, in eighteen eighty, it would have been absurd if you went to an Englishman and said, "You know what? In fifty years, golf is going to be run by North Americans. It's going to produce the most champions. It's going to have all the players, and the courses there are going to be the standard by which all courses are measured." He would have laughed at you. Yeah. Um, but that's exactly what happened. And in golf, the the critical mass of money and 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 authority continues to move west. So it moved to the United States. And I think in 1980, if you had come to us, come to to me and said, you know what, in 2020, you know, the power in golf, the the most the most active golf populations, the people who spend the most money on tournaments. Um, the uh, the people who are developing the best young players are going to be in Asia. I would have found that absurd too. But I think we're already halfway there. I think the women's game is totally um, dominated by Asians right now in terms of money and talent. Um, and this is sort of the way it works. You know, in fifty in in you know in fifty more years, we may think very differently about professional golf and the sort of the focus of golf influence and power. The critical mass is what I usually refer to it as. Right. Um, the money, um, the the players, the the understandings of, you know, whose tastes control what the golf courses look like, what people wear, you know, things like that. So the idea that the Saudis would take a, a huge role in trying to influence golf's future is part of this Western movement. OK, they're they're Asian. They are they are rich. They love the game. They have their own goals. And I think we have to be honest that, you know, the Saudis in particular are trying to diversify their culture and their economy because sure. they know that fossil fuels are running out. And one of the things they're trying to do is build, you know, resorts for the world to come and play, not just golf, but all sorts of recreational options. This is happening right now as we speak. Golf is a really small part of that. But, you know, for us, it feels important. So from 30,000 feet, none of this movement seems to doesn't it doesn't surprise me. And but but what is different is that so far as I know, there's no golf has not been mainstreamed in in Saudi culture. They're, they're not turning out golfers. Right. They're not um, even training up that many golfers. This is completely money driven. You say what you like about um, Korean golf, for example, but they love golf and they play golf you know, in huge numbers as a proportion of their population, I think it's um, the highest in the world. They're turning out the best female players on earth. And, you know, the men are not far behind, really. There's tons of, this is not happening in this locus of power now. So that's different. And it feels purchased and because right. it is purchased. And that's what I think we find unsettling. Um, I just personally have a hard time worrying or caring that much about the fate of the FedEx St. Jude Classic. I just don't. Hey, now, I, Danny I, Thomas I did good work down there at St. Jude. You lay Danny off Thomas, you lay off our flyover a giant. Yes, but he's <laughs> he's long gone and 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 I care about the majors. I don't see that live is really going to affect that it but what it is going to affect is the day-to-day -day life of this roving band of multimillionaires who consider themselves contract workers who can sell their wares to the highest bidder. And in that way, they're different from NASCAR people because NASCAR needs NASCAR racers need NASCAR to organize 
Whereas golfers don't feel like like they need anyone. No. And they'll go and play. And they they played in Saudi Arabia for 30 years. They took the everyone took that money mm-hmm. to go there and be um, you know, taken very good care of and play for big money and then come home. They were just more so, likable when they didn't talk about it. The, the the money talk is just it's so distasteful. I mean, they could be greedy all they want. Be greedy in private. Well, or be <laughs> be be greedy and honest about it. Don't tell me yeah, that, that it's all about the charity. That's what kills me. Um, I remember right early in the live um, controversy, they, the bunch of, I think, what was it, Jay Haas or a couple of old pros were like, you know what, we, we've put together a report here that's going to end this whole controversy. And basically it was no sport gives away more money to charity than golf. And you're endangering that, you know. And what they never point out is just the tiny microcosm of money that they give away to charity compared to the millions that they take Every day and every day, right. you know, it, it, it was it was just a, a it was a perfect response from people who are tone deaf on this stuff. So I, I don't understand I, I, when, when PIF stepped in. I thought that 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 they were partners with the PGA Tour going forward and that live golf really had no purpose. But the signing of Rom confuses me, frankly. I'm not sure what that means. Do you? I think it's a nice leverage play that the that the 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 PGA Tour was flirting with hedge funds and and basically white people in America and all of a sudden they were ignoring uh they were trying to find their 3 billion dollars elsewhere uh, and the Saudi said oh no no wait 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 we still have a deal that we're supposed to consummate you're not making good progress don't forget here's what I can do it was is the that, stick is that your your feeling is that that the PGA Tour was in essence, slow walking. Yes, the absolutely. Of okay, well then it makes a little more sense. Yeah, I think I think grabbing that was reminding them that they've got the big stick uh, in this equation that they are not that the PGA Tour is in a position of weakness, which is fine. I, I'm not. I, I'm I'm exactly where you are. I'll watch the Ryder Cup and the Presidents Cup, the majors. You know, I'll watch the tournaments if they still have them at Riviera and Hilton Head because I like the courses. Otherwise, I'm just as likely to watch the the women play. I like, are they having one of their majors? You know, the Solheim Cup is great watching. We watch that as a family. Um, we went up there as a, uh, well, at Kenwood, you know, they, they're hosting. We went up and watched that. My kids had a blast. We went up there and got to see some of the best players in the world from 10 feet away. It was amazing. Right. So, well, let me just go back and, and just um, check one thing that you said was that you know, the, the, the tiger boom in terms of participation, it's a nothing burger. America has had 25 to 30 million golfers for the entire time I've been in the golf business, which is 30 years. Um, there was a bump during the co- during um, um, COVID mm-hmm. in terms of participation, and they brought in a lot of new, younger players. Whether those people will keep playing is anyone's guess. Um, and it, it, we just don't know. But Golf is unique. It's never going to scale the way soccer did, for example. Um, I'm glad that there are youth leagues, you know, three of them for your kids to choose from. But if you were a kid playing golf in America, at some point, you're going to have to get yourself to the golf course. You're going to have to pay for your golf clubs. You're going to have to pay for your greens fees or your private club membership if that's the way you want to do it. But the point is, is that it's great to have kids who play golf. I was a youth golfer. I loved it. I played with my dad. Um, um, But at some point, you have to do it. And there's that period where you're not going to be able to afford it. You're not going to be able to get to the golf course unless you're playing, you know, college golf or something. Very small percentage of people do that. Right. And so it, golf is unique in that way. And of course, when you're a youth baseball player, 
No one expects you to keep playing golf into your adulthood. Um, so it's a different animal entirely. I mean, golf is peopled by middle-aged white men in bad pants. I mean, this is this is not the this is not the demo of the people who participate in soccer or baseball or um or basketball. I mean, when you get to be 35 years old in, in basketball, you don't play. You shoot horse. You shoot horse. There's one game at my YMCA of of old dudes, right? And and, and God love them. I, my ankles just squeak every time I see them. Like it's fun to watch, and I admire them. But yeah, I admire I, them too. I, I I can't do it. I played I played pickup basketball till I was 45, and then my Achilles tendons. You know, I would the next day they felt like they were on fire, and no matter what liniments I applied and how well I stretched out. It was over, but golf is different. I mean, I'm, I'm almost 60 years old. I played 50 rounds last year. That's a lot for me in Maine. And um, i hope to better that next year uh, because golf is unique. Uh, you know, it, it's talking about the hurting. I end every soccer practice by the end of the season. And we've done all the drills with my kids. I'm talking to little kids, you know, six and seven years old. Mm -hmm. So eventually it's coach versus the team. And we just have a me versus them. It's kind of fun. It teaches them how not to be in the amoeba. But yes, that that next day, the the dog, my feet, my oh, the feet. See but, you, 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 you. See you, you know more than you think. The the amoeba reference is is absolutely spot on. Not a single soccer dad in the nineteen seventies understood the amoeba, oh. which is the moving around on mass of all twenty kids on the on the on the field. No one no one said don't do that. It happens you, on the, the basketball. Idea that you floor. know that you know more than you think. Being a Kentuckian, that it still happens on the basketball floor, really just—that's <laughs> a dark spot in my soul. <laughs> you know, it, tying this together, the soccer dads and and getting back to Generation Zero a little bit. You know, you talked in the book about the long arc of qualification—that it wasn't a two-year build-up to Italy. It was much right. longer. They stood on the shoulders, but even for that team, for the members, they had the Olympics they had to build up for to try to qualify. You know, you had a an increasingly competitive Central and South American neighborhood within soccer. Mm -hmm. You know, even Canada had had gotten the best over the U.S. in a while. You know, now bringing it forward to your next book, um, you know, the the two big kids on the block are supposed to be the United States and Mexico. Now, you know, we are a nation of 350 million. We've had our youth soccer revolution for going on 40 years now, 50 almost, I guess. If you're counting, um, yeah, so about 50. Yeah. Um, one of the things I always wonder is, you know, th that generation of guys from the book, your 90 team, they they made up so much of the curb. They went from the maybe the, the bottom third of international, you know, kind of soccer quality, and they leaps and bounds. They really raised their game up. Has... As you know, but once you get as that pyramid get as you get closer to the top of that pyramid, it gets a lot tougher. You know, Germany is not yeah. taking two steps back. Italy, Mexico, not moving back necessarily. I wonder about soccer in this country. As you know, is it still the fourth or fifth sport? Is is the desire does assimilation um, kind of stunt our growth? Have you know, being a bourgeois country? There's a great line in there that America was born bourgeois without having to get to being bourgeois. And I thought that was that's just, right. That's I thought that right. was a great insight because I feel like that's kind of where you've got when golf or when soccer got to the suburbs, you know, that is different than the hungry kid from the Irish ghetto, you know, fighting or the, the kids from the barrio 
trying to find a way out or the analog right. the the kind of ubiquitous analog in basketball of the the young black kids trying to get out of a bad neighborhood through football or basketball i don't does soccer in america is it is it still a hungry sport or I, i'm wondering why we're not at the top of the pyramid we've been building for 50 years we're still kind of knocking on the door a little bit well i think you know your your question is is inherently exceptionalist. It's this idea that if America just applies itself to a sport, we'll be the best at it. It's just a matter of time. Um, that's really not how it works. But look um, at all our gold medals. Look at all our Olympic medals. medals. And how? But they're individuals. individuals. Right. They're they individuals. <laughs> the, the, I mean, no, there's an American insight. They're well, all individuals. It, it just sports. is. Basketball is the only is the only one that really sort of argues for what you're saying mm -hmm. no one no one in the world plays football so it's very easy to say we're the best at it baseball there is no world championship and i think we can agree that if there was a tournament you know we wouldn't be favored to win it the dominicans the japanese they're all as good as we are oh absolutely um, and, baseball suffers yeah. from this maybe more so from soccer you know i look here right. at, at lower level soccer by meaning college soccer i look at who yeah. uk uk has a pretty good men's team and the women's team. And we have a roster full of internationals. We are not, you know, it's about half and half. You look at any major league or minor league baseball team, it's maybe a third to a half American origin. And the rest of the world has caught up. They have, yeah. they were hungry, you know, yeah. let, that you can't, you can't walk your way off of the Island is the, the common saying for all the, uh, the players from the Dominican. Right. It, is there, does that, is soccer the same way? Soccer in this country was a bourgeois suburban thing for a long, long time. And I think it still is. Um, and that that is both a strength and, you know, and a weakness. It, it doesn't call on that kind of striving that um, that that gives that gives basketball its, you know, frisson of, you know, sort of success and um, same thing for basketball. And it and frankly, soccer is not a bourgeois sport almost anywhere else in the world. Everywhere else, it is a sport for the poor where you are playing to get out of the barrio or to get out of a circumstance using soccer to do it. Um, and that means also there's a lot of poor people. They all play and the good ones um, get out. So we are different in that way. I think that we're sort of we're expanding and meeting um, you know, it is extending down into those um, stratifications of class in America, just as um, it is moving upward in a place like Mexico and becoming more like the game that we, we, you know, that we have not pioneered, but we embody, um, you know, the, the U S Mexico relationship is fascinating for that reason in Mexico, you know, rooting for Mexico and playing soccer is really an, uh, it's an exercise in nationalist behavior. I mean, this is their sport. Um, it's it's for everyone. It's for um, the rich to pay for, but the poor to play and and and, and attend. Um, and here, it, it it is a suburban sport where um, only you know not only but largely wealthy people are playing it, and you have to send your kid to an academy, and that costs money, and that selects out a whole bunch of people who can't participate in it. So they're very different. And that that's one of the things that I'm going to write about in this book is how different these cultures are. But what is, you know, what is fascinating to me is that after 50 years, we are, you know, as good as the Mexicans now when it comes to our national teams. Um, and 
the the rivalry that we have is this clash of cultures. And it's not just the clash of the culture that we just discussed. It's the clash of a culture that um, uh, didn't care about the game, i.e. the American side, for a long time. And a Mexican population that that said, you know, this is the one thing that we're better at than those guys, than those incredible sort of domineering capitalist guys from the north, from El Norte. This is our thing. And really, the adjustment has been much, much more difficult for Mexico to watch the rise of American soccer and now have to deal with the idea that we're their equals and they do not like it. Um, and they they struggle with it because they, you know, I've written about this. The Mexicans think about their relationship with Americans um, with regard to soccer the way that Americans think about the Ryder Cup. We expect to win it yeah, for traditional historical reasons that aren't necessarily data-driven or real anymore, but we still expect to win it. And so when we lose, it's a great catastrophe. We don't ever give the Europeans the credit for being our equals. They're our equals. They've been our equals since 1985. Yeah, no, it's it's finger pointing. It, it's we had the wrong yes. captain, or we had some prima donna that yes. ruined the team room. It's always it's always our but fault. At its we core, did wrong. at its core, yeah, it's our we lose or we win. We lose it or we win it. Whereas, uh, and and the same exact thing is true of the U.S. of the of Mexico when they're playing the American men. They don't ever. They lose to the Americans and blow it and fire the coach or they win like they're supposed to. So this, we have the same exact mentality when it comes to these two athletic pursuits. And that's fascinating to me. Um, we, uh, you know, Americans have to have to understand and accept ultimately that that that, in fact, we won't compete well with the Europeans in the Ryder Cup until we say, you know what? We're there are equals. We, we, we're not going to sit here and explain away why we lost to them. Right. Europe has 500 million people. Why wouldn't they be our equals? Because you know, why American so exceptionalism. Because we're the Americans, how? Exactly. <laughs> and the, the Mexicans have the same sort of regard to soccer. And they won't. They've actually, I think they're like 8, 19 and 8 against the U.S. since 2001. That is not even equal. I mean, they have not fared well against us at the international senior level, but they refuse to acknowledge that we're their equals and they won't compete well with us until they do. You know, one of the things from Generation Zero I loved is that in those early qualifications, you know, when soccer was still finding its way, venue mattered. You know, where where the games were played mattered because of exactly what you're talking about. If if the United States tried to host a, a match in Southern California, if there were 60,000 people there, 55,000 people were going to be rooting for the Mexican, they're going to be shooting the Mexican tricolor flag. It wasn't right. going to be the the red, white, and blue. Uh, you know, golf doesn't have that, it, the, the individual nature, you know, the Ryder Cup, I guess. Uh, it's interesting how Europe has kind of coalesced behind, I guess that's an EU flag, whatever that blue thing is with the. You I, know what they coalesce behind? They coalesce behind being underdogs. The hatred of the the the, <laughs> the, the American hatred. It the, is a it is a us against them. No one thinks we can win. The Americans are arrogant. They don't even recognize that we've beaten them ten times out of thirteen, and they they don't acknowledge it. And they we will never complete compete well with them until we turn that around. 
Is that even this is, my, is our, our bourgeois nature? Huh? Our, our bourgeois nature and the nature of golf does that allow us to to does that can that happen? You know, this I'm is trying a, to think of an example. We're so we're so well we're so we're so inexperienced Americans are when it comes to international competition that we have a hard time doing this. I will agree with you. I'm not sure that there's another example where we have turned around and said, you know what, we're you know these guys are our worthy opponents. And now we're just going to compete with them straight up. Well, one of them might be hockey. I mean, we when we play the Canadians, those are good matches. We don't go into that thinking we should win that. The Canadians do. The Canadians have that pressure. They think they should beat everyone. And when they don't, they are crestfallen. And the whole country goes into the fetal position for you know a month and a half. <laughs> um, so we're not the only ones who experience this. Basketball but, was that way. That's why we have pros playing in the Olympics now. Yes. And I think that that was the holy, the Olympic you know sort of aspect of that was well, oh, well, we played internationally during the Olympics. We thought so little of it that we sent our college kids to do it for us. Yeah. It wasn't until we got tired of losing that we sent the NBA over. And now, you know, the U.S., I think, didn't the U.S. blow the last world basketball championship? I mean, oh, yeah. we, don't, we now, the, there's so many great European pros that we right. don't sit back and say, oh, well, we're going to beat the Germans because we're Americans and they're Germans. So, yeah, basketball is a pretty good example of where you really need to be and frankly, where the rest of the world is with regard to international sport. I mean, if you participate in it long enough, you can't afford to have the attitude that Americans have because you just get humble too many times and you stop thinking that way. And then you just go out and try to win because winning, winning everything is good. But no one, no one, no one who, who did uh, the French lost the World Cup final to Argentina and uh, great game. Um, but no one, no one chastised the French team when they got home. They played amazing they they could have won the world cup they are amongst there's only about six teams that have won it in the history of the event so they're in that rarefied air they respect their opponent and i think that's really what it's about i mean one of the things that i always notice when i play uh matches in golf is the moment i the moment i stop respecting my opponent i lose and the, the, that's the whole idea that the microcosm of that is just assume your opponent's going to make that putt right the minute the minute you start expecting them or wanting them to fuck up, you're dead. You're dead meat. You've lost your mental edge. Um, and I think Americans need to do better when it comes to the Ryder Cup in that regard. Um, but it's tough because you now to circle back, I mean, we're dealing with a bunch of very rarefied, privileged um, people playing on the Ryder Cup team. Um, they're being told all the time how incredibly wonderful that they, you know, they are and how much they're worth and how much their time is worth. And why am I not getting paid for this? And I really, you know, I don't want to disappoint my sponsor by wearing this team, you know, outfit because it, it, it you know, they're not thinking about stuff like this. <laughs> and um, I think the Europeans do a better job of sublimating that stuff when it comes to that event. You know, the golf and soccer, I see the field, you know, the infrastructure. You know, the, what there's that, that kind of getting into your realm, the infamous, you know, build a golf course a day for 10 years model that got us into kind of oversaturation of a niche sport, the golf markets. Yeah. You know, there are soccer fields jammed onto every flat green space that I drive past here. The, yeah. you know, the, at the top level, the MLS has been, I mean, that's really kind of been a remarkable story. We have, we have ardent, fervent fans in Columbus and Cincinnati, Louisville, um, Lexington, a size, you know, we're half a million. We're a very small regional area and we're going to have a, I don't know, second or third tier uh, professional soccer 
right in a brand shiny brand new stadium people love to build um it's is that it seems like that it's they're not building baseball fields anymore you know i i feel like soccer has this arc it's finally starting to penetrate um kind of because it's just so easy it's what you went back to saying the kids you have to get yourself to the baseball field you have to have your bat your glove um mm-hmm. i'm a washed up old baseball player so it hurts me a little bit that you soccer nerds are finally having your way <laughs> i mean you guys used to, but but it it's happening and there's not you know when i ask my kids okay you, we're gonna play you want to sign up for soccer again there's not a stigma it's not that yeah it seems like soccer has won it has it culturally it's relevant in a way that I can't imagine these guys ever saw it coming from the Generation Zero guys. Well, I don't think they did, except that they ended up playing soccer in Spain and Hungary and France, where they saw what a mature soccer culture looks like. Um, so that and and they and they probably didn't say, "Oh, this is impossible," because they're Americans, and you know why wouldn't it happen eventually? Um, and it, it, but it, it wouldn't happen until they took that first step, which is, you know, growing up at the game and then maturing into senior players. Um, and I can't emphasize enough the idea that, you know, the guys who played on that 1990 team, it took 20 years to develop them. You know, once you start playing the game as a kid, you have to grow up, you, you know, you're going to grow up and then enough of them are going to be good enough to compete internationally. But you got to think of like, the nine kids, the 10 kids that those studs played with at every level who never played pro. Mm-hmm. All those people grew up to love soccer like you love baseball. It's like that's what happens when you grow up playing baseball and basketball and football. You love it because you grew up playing it. It is connected that way. Um, but the internationalism of soccer, again, just gives it a leg up. So I, I would argue that it's already past hockey in the dust. Oh, sure. Um, and baseball is probably next. But, you know, I watch the World Series. I watch the playoffs. I can't watch regular season baseball in any kind of dedicated way anymore. I just don't I can't do it. They're, the games are too many games. They're, they're most of them are meaningless. But, you know, when you watch the baseball playoffs, that doesn't look like a a, a, a sport that's hurting to me. It looks no. like diverse, old and young, packing state. Stadiums, great games, huge television coverage. Playoff but, baseball is like a game seven in hockey. Every there, there's an intensity right. from the, the the start, but they can't do that over 162 games. Uh, no, and you don't have to to be a success, especially with like local television contracts. You know, you're making money on that game whether 10,000 people show up or 40,000 people show up. Um, but the international internationalism of soccer, soccer and the unisexuality of soccer make it, I, I think, very difficult to compete with. Now, what does that mean? It means that, yeah, MLS is great. Is MLS as big as Major League Baseball? No. But um, will it ever be? I sort of doubt it. But to be a, a soccer fan in America means that I support an MLS club. I support um, the men's national team. I support the women's national team. Is there even a men's national baseball team? No. It doesn't exist. There's certainly no women's basketball, national, you know, baseball or softball team to support. So in that way, soccer has something on account of its international nature of the game that baseball doesn't even have to compete. So there's that. But then, you know, do you watch the English Premier League on TV? Sure. Yeah. I mean, do baseball? I mean, think of it as think of it in the hockey term. 
NHL is the best NHL, the best hockey in the world. Okay. It's the best league. It attracts. So what's the second best hockey league in the world? I, I think it's know. the Soviet League, the I, Russian I, League. Yeah, I was going to say it's got to be Russians or Eastern, some kind of Eastern European. Maybe. Yeah, exactly. Does anybody in North America watch that hockey? No. No. Only the degenerates. Well, right. <laughs> Maybe it's available on some <laughs> random stream. But the point is, is that soccer is international. So, so that if I'm a soccer, I'm an American soccer fan. I watch MLS. I watch our national teams. And I watch La Liga in Spain. I watch the Bundesliga in Germany. I watch the English Premier League. Those, the money that is spent, I, I, I did the money that is spent by broadcasters to bring in foreign soccer to this market, North America, is about two and a half billion dollars a year in rights fees. TNT pays the NHL around seven hundred million dollars a year, yeah, to broadcast the games, and that's really for the playoffs because no one watches the regular season games so just in pure dollars that's what we're talking and that's just the international portion of the league play that they bring in so soccer just breaks the mold i mean it's just a different way of thinking about a sport that you know in the way it penetrates a culture um yes and then we haven't even talked about participation more kids play soccer than play i think any other sport other than basketball because all the daughters can play you know, right, exactly. why, why, why did I take my kids to watch the LPGA? Because the flip of a genetic coin, I could have two daughters. Exactly. And they can play. So, they can grow up loving soccer. They can grow up loving golf. They can't grow up really loving football. Right. I mean, so uh, all the examples I just listed, those different those different um, ways I can watch soccer. Um, that's just the guys. Now, if you're a young woman or uh, who loves football or soccer in this country, you can do all those things, too. And um, so it's not quite double those numbers because women just don't watch team sports in the way in the numbers that men don't, you know, watch team sports. And that's a whole nother discussion. That's fascinating, but a little controversial. Um, they just don't, they just don't watch them. They, they many, have, um, they have the better pro- things to the, do with their time. <laughs> well, maybe they do, but that's not the way to like grow the WNBA and the right. national women's soccer league. In sure. fact, how, what percentage of the um, WNBA viewership do you believe is male at least two-thirds yeah 70 percent. okay so i don't know why that is but i want someone to write a doctoral dissertation on why because it fascinates me um i've been to a women's it, final four i bowling green kentucky growing up western kentucky hilltoppers their women's yeah. teams were better than their men's you know what we went and watched good basketball my dad and i yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> we, exactly and they, and I mean, it's really not there. There are enough men, I think, to watch the WNBA that it, you know they don't lose that much money. They're not ma- making money, but WNBA will never make money until women start watching it, right? It and the the National Women's Soccer League will never be a huge success until women start watching it and supporting it, and um, that I think is happening. But I, it's never really happened anywhere else. There is no example of a women's team sports league that that really makes money because women watch it. The closest thing I think we have is, is women's golf. Women watch women's golf. Now that's interesting. Because they're, they're individuals. Women like individual sports. They watch figure skating. They watch golf. They watch gymnastics. Mm-hmm. They don't watch swimming and diving. Yeah. Swimming and diving. Yeah. So I don't know why this is, but it, it fascinates me. 
I'm going to that. See, now that's going to bug me all day, Hal. I'm going to be thinking about why, <laughs> why that's why that's true or why that's not true. I don't know why it's true, but I, I've talked to a lot of academics who work in this segment of sport psychology um, because, you know, this is sort of what I write about. Mm -hmm. And they all acknowledge it and they all acknowledge that they'll be damned if they're the one who tries to write that book because it could be a career killer. Right. <laughs> it's, it's a little it's a little hot. You're going to, yeah, cancel culture will come and find you. Ooh, but it, it but I, you know, it's, you know, I, I've talked to, you know, I grew up in this suburban town and I grew up playing side by side with women. I just went to my 35th high school reunion. You know, there were a dozen women there who played soccer with me growing up. And um, a couple of them gave me a hard time about writing this book and not concentrating enough on women's soccer. And I heard this enough that I was I, I was prepared. So I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. I mean, that's a different story. I mean, the women's soccer, you know, in this country, they they immediately became the best in the world. That's just a different book. Right. And it's actually been written a dozen different times by by women. Um, they don't need me to write. But by the way, what what national women's soccer league club do you support? Right. They don't do it. I'm like, what do you? What do you mean you don't support the NWSL? Well, I don't, I don't, I don't really follow sports like that. I'm like, well, then it's going to die. You know, at some point, if if women don't get behind women's soccer in this spectating sort of capacity, how can they hope to compete? Have have women? You know, I know women golf pros. We have a, mm -hmm. a, the place where I practice has a, a, a state hall of famer. She coaches a high school team. She's been doing it for three or four decades. It's just a phenomenal teacher. And I know there are women at, we have pros at other facilities here around town. So if right. I had, if I had daughters, I've got good role models. They can go see someone in the flesh, hands on the number, you know, this book and my own personal experience, I see soccer dads at most of the, the soccer fields. There are a few moms that coach but it, it's you bringing this up strikes me as the there are a lot of men coaching women's soccer you know college at the collegiate level there are oh, yeah. there's some women there's i'm sure there's a pat summit out there that i'm unfamiliar with but it seems like there are a lot more men is that a is that a cultural thing is that a just like every other career where women are put to the, the choice of career versus family and coaching is a, frankly, a pretty tough life at the lower levels. You know, if you're getting into it, there's, it seems like there's a void there. Do you have any idea on why, why they didn't, you know, all these guys from generation, you know, from the NAL or the, the NASL that mm -hmm. you know, stuck around and became influential. And even the guys that didn't make it that, you know, became coaches in these regional hubs right. is there has there been a women's equivalent of that on the heels of Mia Hamm and Brandy Chastain or is that something that just hasn't developed yet well I, th I think I think there is I, I don't think it's a void um okay. you know, just to pick a word that you that you use but I don't think that at all I think that um coaching at the youth level um I can't I can't speak to it um personally because I'm not coaching at the youth level anymore but I did you know the women's teams are coached by women okay um today the, the young ones, you know, and even up through high school, I think that's true. And and why? Because of Generation Zero. I mean, we're we're two or three generations past the point where um, all these women grow up playing soccer. They know enough to coach their kids under 10 team. Um, and they do. 
Um, and again, and coaching, I think, is something that is adjacent to what we're talking about, because that is a that is a vocation. That right. is a, a calling. It's something I want to get paid to do, whereas no one no one has to pay that much money to turn on the television and watch a women's professional soccer league game. Mm-hmm. Um, no, um, and, and no one has to do that much work to to go to a game and bring their daughters with them. Um, and I think that is happening more than at MLS games, but I don't know. I, anecdotally, you know, my wife is, could care less about any sport, you know, that is played on TV. Um, but she will go to any game. I mean, she wants to go, I mean, if we're going to Fenway, she goes, I mean, cause that's an experience that she wants to have. It's fun, but watching it on television, the way that, you know, modern sports are packaged and that's how modern sport leagues make money. Team sports. Mm-hmm. You will have to watch on TV. She has no interest in that. And um, I don't know why um, that is. I can't, I, and I, you know, I know her pretty well by now. Um, it's, uh, I don't know whether it's genetic or nature or nurture or what is going on there, but that is not something that m- really any of the women I know do with any great regularity. It's something that men do. And the joke is, well, women have more things to do um, than <laughs> sit around and watch sports. Right. I think it's, I think it's a little more complicated than that. I don't know the answer, um, but I, but I like, like you, I'm, I'm fascinated by the question. Um, especially when women do mobilize to watch individual women compete at things, track and field, gymnastics, diving, um, swimming, um, tennis, golf, even. tennis, exactly. The, the, these are stars um, and that they will, they will support them in that way. But team sports, I can't think of a single example. And all the all the team sports that are played in Europe are the same way. They're all um, they they have developed leagues. Um, there are people who go to the games, but they they exist as adjuncts. Right. To the the Tot- Tottenham's club. had a good weekend. The men finally won a game after a long short spiral, and the their the Tottenham women had a great yes. Weekend. Yeah, but exactly. It's, it's, it's Tottenham. You know, it's that it's that organization's adjacent, right. like you're saying, under the same umbrella. And- Right. And I mean, that that those relationships have transformed women's soccer. I mean, the European model is 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 has surpassed the American model when it comes to running these clubs and developing talent for those clubs. We don't do that here. We we, we we're just starting to start the academies at our pref- professional clubs, which are they're poor. They're, they're they're working hard to keep the lights on at these clubs. You know, the collegiate model um, that we have. And Dr. Markovitz writes about this in his new book, um, you know, the, the Collegiate model here is not done, you know, it's the only place in the world where they rely on colleges to turn out um, senior uh, national team players. It's just not built to do that. I mean, they do it much better in Europe with clubs, you know, and they get the kids when they're 12 and and they raise them up to be pros. That's what they do. Well, then they do that with um, golf, right? We've talked about this last time that the, the, yeah. the golf academies that Scotland is going through, you know, they've gone through controversy for years supporting, you know, is enough money going to the Scotland union, you know, Rory, Rory McIlroy being the best example coming out of Irish youth development. You know, he didn't go to college. He, there was rumors that he was going to some obscure, I can't remember if it was like East Carolina or something. And before he Mm -hmm. decided to stay, you know, to go professional full on, Um, you know, and, and in golf, we have, we don't have the, Cat, well, we're developing academies, but it's kind of a hodgepodge. It's not a national organization. It's a capitalist. No. You know, what I've noticed is that in the absence of these, these, and they're not, they're not necessarily national apparatus apparati. Um, they are, they are 
usually attached to clubs where professional coaches are training them up, identifying young talent, and then training up that young talent. In the absence of that, college, American college systems are the best option. And we can see that because before European clubs got into developing young women as professionals, American colleges did it best. They turned out all the American players and 75% of the European players played their, their soccer at American colleges. And the same is true for golf. There's no apparatus to, you know, broadly to develop golfers in European countries. They still send their kids to play golf at American colleges because that's the best place to get training. Outside of the kind of the and, South Korean model, yes, there's look at the SEC, yeah. the strong golf conferences. All of yes. those, all those teams have women from Northern Europe, Western Europe. Right. It's all supplemented, and, right? And if you, when you get down into the the less, the more obscure sports, you know, women's hockey, you know, young Finns who want to play hockey, go and play at the University of Minnesota. There's nothing for them in Finland to train them up at the highest level. You know, there might be a club or two that has a women's team, but they're not getting the training they need. They're going to get much better training at American colleges. So there's still, there's still, you know, a utility for the American college system, but only when those formal academy systems attached to professional clubs don't exist. Once it, they do, though, they're superior. We're talking about people coming from other parts of the Western world, generally. Looking, yeah. jumping back to your book is the is the Mexican infrastructure in soccer changing? Are they starting to send kids North through the college system or are there, is there a feed, Do they have a feeder system? That's just totally a different model that, and that's part of kind of a point of their pride and why they don't like our team so much. Well, yeah, the, the, the short answer is no, because the Mexicans have always operated on the more traditional level. Their clubs, their professional clubs are the ones that identify 12 year old kids who have talent, bring them into, their academies and train them up to be senior players okay. on the men's side that's the way they've done it and that's the way they did it in spain that's the way they do it in france that's the way they do it everywhere in the world except the united states now starting with generation zero um they in the founding of major league soccer in 1996 the men started to move away from from the collegiate model to the academy model okay. now every single Every single MLS team, and there are 30 of them, has at least one academy attached to it, often more than one, two or two or three. Um, they have affiliations. Um, and so the men have moved completely away from the college feeder system. Um, and that's why our national team is the best it's ever been. They all got trained up by MLS clubs and then or they started out at Bayern Munich, you know, and stayed there and came back and joined. So, I mean, the academy system being trained up by professional coaches at professional clubs is the way to do it. The women in America are still clinging to this college model in a way that is, I think, hurting them. Um, while the Europeans have given themselves over to this traditional system that works, we're still insisting that there's no there's no difference in the way that we're turning out pros and the way Europeans are turning out pros. I think that's mistaken. And I think that the, the quicker that the women's professional soccer league can get academies attached to those clubs and start bringing young players in the better off we'll be. I think there's five academies now attached to um, NWSL clubs. And I think there's 12 or 14 teams in the league. So but th these are modest operations. They they don't have money to burn, you know, on academies. It's a it's a tough situation for them. 
everything you just said also applies to golf. Think yeah. of who, think of who the top women golfers are. There are young women from Asia who did not go to college. Yeah. Think of the American stars. Lexi didn't go to. I mean, you've got Lexi didn't go to college. You've got now the maybe there's some cachet with the Augusta Women's Amateur. I mean, the mm -hmm. I got to see Maria Fassi, Fossey, um, and Jen. Now I'm blanking on her name. Who actually won that initial one? Um, right. They, and so they they are sticking on the the LPGA tour and they, they will probably win majors. They have a chance to win majors there at that top mm -hmm. level, but the top women in the sport are not coming from the college system. You know, the, the, the top, the, the top Americans, some of them are skipping uh, or, or it's like, it's a, uh, the do that because of this maybe the semester tour is too small or does, there's not levels beneath that, you know, the, right. on the men's side, you can have people going, you know, maybe one year of college, maybe, you know, trying to jump straight out. Where or the AGGA the the youth golf has gotten so good at the elite level that they're closer to being prepared. Although with the NIL, I guess now that they can make money in college as a golfer, in theory, uh, at the the super elite, the one tenth of one percent level, maybe that changes a little bit, and that's going to you know sustain college golf a little bit. But everything you just said about the you know it, it's almost like it's become gymnastics. You know, if you are a college gymnast you are never winning a gold medal in the Olympics. Like you have, you are too old and too big at that point. The women, yeah. my wife, yeah. my wife worked in athletics and she explained that I, because I would watch gym, you know, SEC has fantastic gymnastics program. And I would look mm -hmm. and like, this is just incredible. These are amazing. And she goes, and you know what? These aren't even close to the best in the world. These are, right. these are women that do it because they absolutely love it. They are, right. they're in their twenties. There are no Olympic gymnasts in their, no. their, they're 20. So they they're doing it for the love. And I almost feel like that the, the university model is being relegated to that is like, we're, are we in a roundabout way going to end up back to the kind of antiquated gentle gentleman, amateur gentlewoman, amateur at the college ranks and the, the professionals, the, two different tracks, two different universes. Well, the neurons are firing my brain. I mean, I remember thinking about this when Jennifer Capriati became you know, a sensation. She was 14 or 15 years old. And then you look at figure skating, you look gymnastics and you're like, what am, all these women are at the top of their, of the world rankings. They're all 15 years old. That's part of my French. That's fucked up. I mean, what, I mean, how is it that, that, that biology, you know, says that a woman peaks, you know, physically, you know, in these regards and these mm -hmm. sports at such a young age, um, or is it that they're just, playing sports that men devised for them or that men played and they just happened to be playing because men played them. It's, it's an interesting situation. It's like, what, why is this? But um, I'm not, again, I'm not, I'm not sure what the, an the answer is there, but I, I, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong. And I hope Americans figure this out. There's nothing wrong with um, a 20 year old woman competing in gymnastics at the college level. I went to college and played um, varsity soccer and varsity golf. I had, they were both outstanding experiences. Why didn't you play American sports, Hal? Don't you love America? <laughs> I did. I did run track in high school. I played basketball too, but at college, that's just the way it was. <laughs> but the thing was college sports weren't designed to create world-class athletes. That's not what they're for. They're about participating. Yeah. They're about playing it, you know, a little higher level than you did in high school. 
That's why colleges had them. And this, this drives me crazy. The whole Big Ten. I have a brother-in-law, who, uh, University of Maryland graduate, big Turk, big Turk. I'm married and, to a uh, Turk. Tread lightly. Big Ten. Tread lightly. Yeah. I'm married to a Turk. Yeah. They hate the Big Ten. They they refuse oh, to acknowledge it. I you know they they they're they've got a tiger by the tail there in Maryland, but that's a whole other discussion. But the idea that <laughs> the idea that 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 college sports would draw that the idea that the making money playing college basketball or football on the men's side would so distort the college athletic experience of so many people. Think about the people who play volleyball and field hockey or swim at the university of Nebraska. Mm -hmm. They got to get on a plane to go play Penn state. Are you kidding me? I mean, what, in what world does that make sense? And then, the people, you know, the the football people will say, well, they're paying for everything. I'm like, do you know how long they've been playing field hockey at the University of Nebraska? Since 1922. You know, for, for 70 years, they were just fine. But you're now they have to get on a plane and go to play at Penn State because you are chasing a national championship that you will never, you never right. achieve. But it, it they're chasing I, that TV I, contract. Don't don't kid yourself. Yeah, exactly. So it's like <laughs> that. They've so distorted the idea. I mean, I, I love, I, I value my, my own experience playing college sports so greatly. And I know that that's not something that is limited to the D3 school that I went to. I mean, anyone who plays college sports um, does it because they love it. Not they're because good. their teammates they are their friends sure for life. Yeah. Right. But it, it, that that's all been second, you know, rendered secondary to this idea that, well, we, we need to be in the big 10 because we need to, you know, be in a power conference so that our teams can be considered for a, um, a mythical American, you know, football playoff and everyone else, the school has to follow along. What happens to like, yeah, the pac 10 has gone now, right? The pac 12 is gone, it's right? It's the pac two. It's the deuce. The, right. So what happens to every other sport, you know, that, that, that competed in that, in that conference, you know, you know, track and field, do they still have dual meets? Do they, what happens? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And there's no history there. They haven't been running significant track in Oregon for the last 50 years. Or anything. <laughs> I know it's like, but they must. I mean, what's stopping them from just? It's the money, Hal. It's just the same thing that's their... going on with golf. It's everyone's chasing that high dollar. I'm gonna, you yeah. know, it, it's it became. They filled airtime with it. It became big business. I don't know when. I'm sure there are only about seven thousand books written on the commercialization of college sports. You know, the the fun thing about football is football is unique. That money never goes through Bloomington. That never gets to the NCAA. That's all conference yeah. money. That the football yeah. is unique. And yeah. you know, Chip Kelly, the guy out at UCLA, had an interesting take that football should just be separate. It should just yeah. be separate. Let everyone right. else let the Pac-12 exist, the West Coast right. teams, all those teams for baseball, basketball, softball, all the the you know less revenue sports. And I think that's the that, that's the smartest thing I've heard about it. Just let football well, be separate. He's right. He's it's weird enough that a, a school like UCLA or Notre Dame or um, you know, Wesleyan, where I went, feels the need to attach themselves to this football team that really has nothing to do with the academic and cultural life of the college. No. It's a moneymaker. Um, it's a farm system for the NFL, but there's no reason why you know it should really be attached to UCLA, just to put for that example. Yeah. But if it is. It shouldn't. It shouldn't dominate what what the tennis team does or right. what you know 
the, the gymnastics team does. I mean, it shouldn't oblige them to like be part of the big 10 should the football team go. It just makes no sense. The other thing that, that always amazes me that, you know, I played college soccer in London for a year when I did a year abroad there. And, um, uh, people find out about that, that I played for the university of London. They're like, Oh, Oh, you must've been really good. I'm like, no, no, I was a college soccer player. I was fine. But only people who played college soccer in England were people who couldn't play pro. Right. You weren't in the academy system. You were the others. I was the other, I was the left, you know, they were the also rans and the soccer was decent. It was um, nothing great, but it was good. But the point is, is that only in America do we just, do we attach this, this kind of infrastructure to the college, the university system, people in people in the rest of the world. And I, I really feel like this is true. They don't understand what the fuck we're doing with this. They understand that we're chasing money with it, but they, all they see is the compromise that must be inherent to that, yeah. that equation. Um, and they, they just don't get it. And they also don't get the idea that we'll watch it. Yeah. It's like, Oh, you mean people watch college sports? I'm like, they go crazy for college sports and they eight, don't get that at all. Eight Saturdays a year. Tuscaloosa, Alabama is the largest city in that state. I know it's crazy. Lexington. Oh, and, yeah. And Lexington football too. coach is the most, is the most highly paid public employee. <laughs> right. Uh, I'm gonna, <laughs> and that's true for about 20 states. Oh, at least. Yeah. It's if it's, it's either whoever's running their hospital or whoever the football yeah. coach is. That's the, those are your only two choices. Uh, I'm going to circle back. I want to get us back, lower blood pressure. So you, sure, sure. you mentioned professionally, you've been around the, the golf course side of golf, especially for the last several decades, mm-hmm. which means you saw, you have seen kind of the proliferation of the Asian bloom, you know, in the eighties, golf japan got golf crazy and they've built they built out all the golf courses they could the last they bought pebble beach right for the that was the japan everyone was worried that japan was taking over america and then you know fast forward a generation and it's korea and china you know you saw you i know you for sure know all about the building of the pacific rim and all those golf courses and how that was popular is it start now you you mentioned that culturally in the middle east golf isn't there you know this is the dubai model that my brother lives in dubai i don't know there's no waiting list for him to join a country club over there is from your your from that side of it are you seeing is it a build it and they will come model is that what live is is allowing saudi to do you know they they play one tournament over there that i'm aware of they have the one golf course that gets tv time in Saudi Arabia is, are we starting to see any seeds moving over there or is this so up in the air and it's kind of what Liv is doing is all for show. Is it catching? Are they going to build the golf? Can they afford to build the golf courses and let the people come in? Or are they going to just going to build the golf courses for the tourists as far as the latter is my, is my understanding is they're, they're building the golf courses. They're building them hand over fist, but okay. they're building them as part of resorts that will lure mainly Europeans um to saudi arabia as a tourism destination what the, what the saudis have recognized is what they recognize in f1 and tennis and other sports that they've gotten into they're you know they're not necessarily trying to wash dirty money what they see is that golf commands the attention of high net worth people generally right. and they want part of that action yeah it started with horse racing they, because they had yeah, a natural exactly. the Arabian, you know, the Arabian horse, they had a tie-in, and they saw exactly. who who is the king of 
the sport of kings, not poor people. Right. So, I mean, why is golf, you know, as big as it is in the United States? Um, the Golf Channel exists because um, they get very, very small TV numbers. But the people who do watch have money. And, you know, Cadillac and BMW want to advertise on right. that. And they want to sponsor tournaments that are that people watch on the Golf Channel and other networks. But, you know, the Saudis have recognized this connection for golf. That's why it's in, of interest to them. It's not of interest because uh, a bunch of Saudis play it. Um, as far as I know, very few Saudis play it, and that may change. But that is why it's different from what we've seen in Southeast Asia and um, East Asia, Japan and Korea, China. Um, those people really like golf, and they they are playing it in huge numbers, and they're turning out you know tournament ready players and champions. Um, and naturally, as we've talked, you know the, the 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 critical mass of golf keeps moving to where that's true, and. Um, I think that this, this, this critical mass of golf is still in the United States, but women's golf is now bigger and more lucrative and better played in Asia. Um, and it may go that way on the men's side. Who knows? But I think that we are going to see a movement of tournament play to Saudi Arabia. We're going to see, um, you know, more resorts built there and more money um, from the Saudis going into golf generally in the same way they've put money into F1 generally. Um, because they, they, it's good for their brand. It, it highlights the idea that people can come to Saudi to, to, uh, partake of these sports as spectators and the lifestyle. Um, and these people have money and they like that. It's warm so in the that, winter. That's what, that's the connection I see. Um, so the live tour, the live tour, if, if you were correct and that the, the PGA tour was dragging its feet with regard to bringing in the PIF to partner, um, then the ROM thing makes perfect sense to me. Um, but it was my understanding that eventually, essentially, the, 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 the public investment fund of Saudi Arabia was going to be uh, a partner in the PGA Tour, and they were going to um, fund tournament purses in this country, in the United States, but wherever the PGA Tour plays, which inevitably will you know include um, Saudi Arabia and other places, um, because golf is a world game, and those tournaments are already being played. They're just not being played for the same money right when the money is the same the pros will show up because they're nascar drivers that that they, they don't care where the money comes from they go and play for the money they're like sam kinnison said about people who are starving in the desert go where the food is <laughs> golfers go where the food is they always have the british came to america to do exhibitions why that's where the money was yeah and now pros are going to go to Saudi because that's where the money is. It's been ever thus. And um, it's just a circular, a circular pattern pattern. Well, in 30 years, I can't wait to read your book about it. But in the meantime, <laughs> everyone should get a copy, a copy of Generation Zero. I've enjoyed it. Just it, it has brought to my imagination something I had no concept of before. It, it was a, a book of first impression, which I think was kind of the point that nobody had been telling the story of those guys of, you know, uh, a lot for again for people of a certain age soccer began in 1994 in this country like that <laughs> yeah. just full stop so having some documentation the storytelling and the kind of the personal connection with you uh really enjoyed it can't wait to I, i'm sad that we have to wait you're targeting 26 for the new book if you, if uh, you it'll come out in time for the world cup um okay. because the u.s and mexico are co-hosting the world cup but right. uh, the manuscript is due may 2025 okay 
Well, I'll let you get to work soon. Uh, <laughs> speaking of which, there's one thing I wanted to ask. In this long arc of qualification, it was 2018 just a blip, the failure of the United States to, to qualify, or had there been a regression kind of of talent? Like there was that wasn't expected. You, the United States didn't qualify for the the 2018 right. World Cup, and you know after Fox had paid a you know several billion dollars for the rights to broadcast in this country, I'm sure they were thrilled. Yeah. That was. <laughs> That was puzzling to me. You know, it was that team couldn't pass. I remember watching them. They, you know, watching Saturday morning English Premier League is like, oh, that's crisp. That ball moves. And the Americans looked very big and very slow. And they didn't like, I'm just curious is that just what happens at the highest level that there can only be so many elite teams and US just had a bad year? Yeah, it was a blip. That's the short okay. answer. Yes. But um, if you talk to the experts, um, they they say the the birth years 1990 to 1996 just didn't produce enough good players. I never thought of it in that way, but when they said that, I went and looked at it. I'm like, oh yeah, I mean the the, the pros that came up from those six years just weren't very good. So the national team is not going to be 20 years later, as we've noticed. You know that's how long it takes. 20 years later, they're just not as good as they needed to be. But the other thing I think that again, and this is just points to the internationalism is that um international soccer is is really really hard yeah. um to to and and that you know it, italy who've won four you know world cups they didn't qualify for the last world cup um they you know they've they've missed european championships they've they're they're you know i think the dutch you know who maybe the best team never to win a world cup they they didn't make it you know the last time so it happens <laughs> and and the fact that we missed one out of ten you know it's not good but it's it's not any kind of sign that the that the earth is falling. We're the, but the national team we have now is better. is the best one we've ever had. I, I would, I will go to my, I'll, I'll, I'll die on that Hill. And one of the reasons why is that we, we um maybe have gotten a little complacent and um, that's never happening again because all of these guys now are being, we're all trained up in European academies. They're all international players. They're not in ML. None of them are in MLS. They're all playing the best soccer in the world elsewhere wherever they have to, they go where the food is and uh, their um, our national team is better for it. But uh, you know, I think a lot of people watched more MLS in 2018 and, and forward because they had to, because we fucked up and, and missed that tournament. Yeah. But uh, we'll never know, but yeah, just a blip. I think the, 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 the outlook remains very bright. Well, good. So you can rest easy, Dave. Well, cause I was losing all that sleep over that. I just thought that was, <laughs> I just thought it was interesting that you, you've had this big build and then, you know, I guess that the margin for error at the level the U.S. is at now is just so much smaller than than what I thought it was. I guess, yeah. yeah. Americans that you know, you know your patent. Americans love a winner and despise a loser, and that's just, yeah. um, yeah, the idea of not making it. It'd be like the it's like when the Americans you know screwed up and didn't make the medal round in basketball. Everyone's like, hey, 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 hey. Hey. Whoa, 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 what what yeah right that's that's how it goes <laughs> it's a good place to be it is hey thanks for stopping by for this episode of the blind shots podcast hal is so much fun to talk to his experiences are so foreign to what i've lived it's always intriguing to listen to his stories and his analysis i enjoyed Reading Generation Zero, even as someone with a fledgling knowledge of soccer and soccer history. Again, Generation Zero is currently available for a totally reasonable price 
in paperback form on Amazon.com. Please go check it out. If you enjoyed what you heard here, I think you'd enjoy reading uh, the full version. You should definitely buy it. Frankly, I can't wait for Hal's follow-up book on the evolution of the rivalry between the American and Mexican men's national soccer teams. It's my understanding that that's a true bad blood situation that makes the PGA Tour live golf nonsense look like good-natured ribbing between old college buddies. So uh, he can't finish that book quick enough for my liking. Hope you enjoyed what you heard here today. If you didn't enjoy this episode or found the conversation uh, not up to your standards, I'm sorry. I'll try to do better and be more golf-centric next time, I guess. Maybe. Uh, Listen, the free advice remains the same. Sit up straight and remember to hydrate. You'll thank me later. And as always, when you have the choice, do decide to go for it and take dead aim. It, it just was burning against the engine. It was so steep. I mean, the the reason that Dave had such a great time, I believe it's called um, hypoxia. Isn't that when your brain doesn't get enough oxygen from altitude? Cerebral hemorrhaging or something like that? Um, it's so high that like... It, like even John Mark said, God damn. Yeah. I mean, it was higher than John Mark, Matt. All right. That's how high we were. That's up. That's up there. Dude, I mean, I've never seen anything like it. And Dave's like, well, just follow the road. You can't see the road at night because your bob damn headlights are straight up into the. <laughs> he was putting. It- I got a great view of Orion. The Big Dipper. Awesome. Yeah.